coming back into the book of Acts uh, for the next, probably for the rest of the summer, uh, spring and summer. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 today. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a um, hardback black one or a blue one around you somewhere. And uh, you can grab that. Acts chapter 14. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. And so uh, we'll be kind of touching through verses 1 through 28 of Acts chapter 14. Um, we're not going to read the whole text together, uh, but we're going to get through it. And what I want to encourage you to do is during these weeks, um, as you see the weekly come out, uh, which is our weekly email, I'm going to do my best to put the text for that week in there. And it, it should come out Thursday afternoon, which should give you enough time between then and Sunday to kind of read the next text for the coming Sunday uh, and so that way we can work through the text here. Uh, and sometimes we'll probably read through the whole thing, but when we have a big chunk like we do today, 28 verses, um, we will just work our way through the text as we can. Um, so if you're newer here, you may not have been here when we were last in Acts, which was last summer. Um, but that's okay because all of uh, the sermons from that series uh, that I've given and that other couple other people have given uh, during that series are online on our church's website or our YouTube channel. Uh, the quickest way to find it is to go to lansdown.church slash acts. And there's a button you click and all the sermons from the past uh, 22 weeks of this series are there. So this is week 23 uh, that we've been in the book of Acts. Um, I could make an attempt at some kind of really, really long recap, but I honestly don't think that would work very well since we're so far into Acts. And so it really is, I know this could be a shocker again to hear from a pastor on the platform, but uh, read the Bible. And if you read Acts 1 through 13, you'll be caught up. All right? So that's on you. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be again in Acts chapter 14. Now, if you watch sports, uh, which spring and fall uh, are two of my favorite times of the year for sports, because in the spring, hockey is heating up with playoffs and baseball is just starting. And in the fall, Hockey is beginning, and baseball is getting to the playoffs. And if you're like, well, what about football? I don't really care about it. So there's your answer to that. And I didn't even mention basketball. And I know where I am, and that's fine. All right? I like baseball, and I like hockey, and I'll watch the other two, but those are the two that I really like. But here's a common theme that you'll hear, okay? Listen, they only play 16 games. It's like... 17. All right. Ooh, oh. 17. But here's a theme that you'll hear when you... If you ever watch, it doesn't matter what championship it is, it, it could be Little League World Series, it could be College Football Championship, it could be whatever it is, right? At the end of the championship game, they stick a microphone in front of some guy who's out of breath and sweaty, right? I don't know why we do this, but we do. And they ask him really, really kind of benign questions, and they answer with really pat answers, right? Like, well, we scored more points than them, so we really got it done today. Yeah, that's how it works in sports. Um, but here's one thing you'll hear. They'll usually say something, particularly with hockey players for some reason. This is one of the things that they'll really talk about. But every sport, really, you notice it in every kind of like the end of the championship, whatever it is. They'll say something to the effect of, if it's a team sport, we really pushed through some adversity. We got through injuries. We got through something that went wrong this season. And we really stuck with our plan and we accomplished our goal together. Right? That's the kind of... They'll say that in, in a lot of sports. Well, we really stuck it out together, and we made it through even though it was we went through some difficulty. And I think this is one of the reasons 
that sports fans actually like sports. Yes, we watch it because it's amazing athleticism a lot of time. But we also like to see people be really committed to a vision that they're going to pursue no matter what. It's one of the things that I really love about sports. And this on a obviously far more eternally significant scale because in this in the you know scope of eternity sports are meaningless. They're just entertainment. But on a much more eternally significant scale, I think we see this in the book of Acts, and in particular in Acts 14. Uh, it shows us a really courageous attitude that the apostles uh, that we're going to see here have when it comes to their mission and when it comes to what they believe about what Jesus is doing in the world. We see the first missionaries really kind of bravely being bold to preach Jesus despite... Uh, these really extreme conditions and extreme temptations to quit doing that. Uh, and, and so that's what we're going to see. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they've already demonstrated bravery on their first missionary journey up to this point. They, it's kind of the two of them against the world, right? Uh, on Cyprus, they preach the gospel, and there's really no response. It's just kind of indifference. Uh, in Paphos, they have a convert, uh, but they actually have a battle with a wizard. And if you're like, a wizard? That's in the Bible? It is. Read it. It's awesome. In brave obedience, then, after that, they set out for Asia Minor. Uh, it's too much for John Mark. If you remember that part of the story, he uh, abandons them and he returns home. And then in Antioch of Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch, however you want to say that, they minister uh, the word. This is in Acts chapter 13, and it brings persecution. Uh, and so uh, they finally end up shaking the dust off their feet, and they head out for Iconium. Uh, and then through thick and thin there, they maintain really this single-minded devotion uh, and purpose in following Jesus. They just keep following Jesus no matter what. And so then in chapter 14, which is where we're at today, Paul and Barnabas complete their first missionary journey. They've traveled through Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, uh, and then they return to kind of home base uh, in Antioch in Syria. And then after being kicked out of Antioch in Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas keep following the call of Jesus and they head out again until they come to this ancient city uh, of Iconium. Now, uh, we're going to kind of cover chunks. And so this is kind of verses 1 through 7 here. Uh, it, this is an ancient city. If you don't know anything about Iconium, like me, because I didn't know anything until I uh, studied this, right? We don't study ancient Bible cities, most of us. Um, but it was a, an ancient city back then. It was a city that was claimed to be older than the city of Damascus, which is a really ancient city. Uh, there was a king in its, in its far past um, named Nanakis, and, and so they had this phrase, since the days of Nanakis, uh, which was kind of a way of saying, like, since the beginning of time, like way back then. Uh, and, and so um, there, there, were no, uh, there wasn't a big, large Roman presence in this city. Uh, they were kind of out there, and so it remained more Greco in its attitude. It remained more Greek in its culture. And it was kind of resistant to Roman authority as a city. Uh, they were not governed um, directly at, like it normally would be in those cities by a Roman governor. But they had an assembly uh, of citizens called Demos, uh, which kind of held itself uh, at arm's length from the Roman representative that they had in their city. And so this is where uh, we see first success for Paul and Barnabas, but then immediate opposition. So verse 1 of chapter 14 of the book of Acts. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So this is not like 
basic, um, empty sort of speech. This is gospel proclamation in the synagogue, and, and a bunch of people believed. This is amazing, right? Uh, both Jews and Greeks, they believe. And so great success. But right here in verse 2, we see opposition already. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, I love that. We go from their, their opposition poisoned the minds of people against them, and we kind of expect the next sentence to be, so then they left and they moved on. But that's not what it says. They poisoned their minds against the gospel, so they stayed for a long time. That's the response of these missionaries. They stay around for a long time. They continue to speak boldly. They had just been run out of Antioch at Pisidia, but they're not about to sort of run at the first sign of trouble, right? They've stayed long enough that in just a few verses, there's a group of disciples. So that's long enough to, to have some relationships going on. Listen to what Paul himself wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4 about this kind of perseverance that he's exhibiting here with Barnabas. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's what he says about persecution and perseverance here. Now, what we also see, though, is that Paul and Barnabas, and I want, I want us to hear this, they are brave, but they're not stupid, Right? They're brave and also wise. I keep hearing this uh, many times, and I definitely heard it over the last three or four years uh, during COVID, that um, we just simply need to trust God and forget about all this other stuff. But here's the issue with that. God gave you a brain to use, and in our scriptures, which we think is the word of God, we have an entire section called wisdom literature. So Paul and Barnabas here exercise good discernment and wisdom while they're being courageous. Listen to verses 4 through 7. The people of the city were divided. Now remember, this is after some time that they've stayed there. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Ly Lysenia, I knew I was going to mispronounce that one. And to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So their opposition ends up dividing this town council, this demos, and decides to do what would never have happened if there had been Roman rule that was strong there, which is stone these people, right? So now Paul and Barnabas have been kicked out of two cities back to back, and they keep serving Jesus. They keep proclaiming the gospel. They keep going in. And so you have to think, right, they're feeling, they got to be feeling some discouragement. Like, man, we want to we see a harvest, Lord. Like, we want people to, to know you and love you like we do. There had to be things that were said that, were, that hurt them. That they might have worried about leaving some baby Christians behind. If you've ever discipled someone and you see difficulty coming, you feel a sense of, like, spiritual fatherhood or motherhood or brotherhood to those people. And I'm sure they were feeling that as well. Um, and so they had this worry, and yet 
When we read Paul's life accounts, we also find a really strong underlying sense of anticipation and joy. It's, it's always there with Paul. He's a realist, but he's also filled with hope, the hope of the kingdom of heaven, right? This is his words from inside a Philippian jail in Philippians 4. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of, speaking of sports references, one of the most misused verses ever when it comes to sports references. That verse doesn't mean you're going to win the championship. All right? It means what Paul says here. I've learned how to be low. And I've learned how to have abundance. I can do all of that because it's Christ who strengthens me. So Paul and Barnabas from here in Acts 14, they move another about 26 miles out into kind of more wildness into a place called Lystra. And so now it gets even more intense for them. Um, there, there's really known little bit, only a little bit known about the origin of Lystra. Uh, but we, what we know about it is kind of a Wild West frontier outpost uh, in the empire. Caesar Augustus made it a Roman colony in about 6 BC. Uh, and so he established it as the farthest east of the fortified cities in the region of Galatia. Uh, and again, so it probably had some of that Old West ethos that we would think of, the American Old West, where it's kind of like everybody for themselves, there's not a lot of law there. Uh, and so the people were um, kind of half barbarous, uh, half barbarian, if you will. The Romans ruled the land, the Greeks controlled the commerce, and the Jews in this part of the world had very little influence. They were marginalized people. Uh, there was no synagogue there. Uh, but things get off to a great start for Paul and Barnabas in verse 8 says this, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And so as Paul is preaching publicly, he's seeing a person, a man who's been lame from birth and Paul filled with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that fills you and empowers you if you know and love Jesus. Paul sees this kind of knowing gaze from this person, indicating that he is wanting a work of grace. And so Paul sees this man's response. He kind of follows the impulse of the Holy Spirit, and he just heals him uh, without warning. Uh, and, and so if you remember back when we did the fourfold gospel recently, we talked about this is one of the reasons for healing that we see in the New Testament and in church history. Uh, and what happens here, right? This healing happens and everyone's paying attention to the gospel proclamation now. And so this guy who everybody knew is basically just standing in front of them, walking. He's never walked before. How does this happen? And so now Paul has their attention he gives them, uh, he begins to walk them through the gospel uh, according the gospel of Jesus, right? He gives them a little bit of the doctrine of man. He gives uh, the story, of, he, he tries to give the story of the incarnation, the atoning work of the cross, the necessity of faith, and we see that harvest happens. But there's just one complication that doesn't actually get us there. The people of Lystra, they had an ancient uh, legend that Zeus and Hermes, the two Greek gods, had once come to, the, to, to kind of where they are, to the hill country, disguised as mortals seeking lodging. 
And, and so they, the legend goes that they asked a thousand homes and no one would take them in. And so finally, at a little cottage made of straw and reeds, a poor elderly couple, Philemon and Balkis, freely welcomed them. They feast with them with what little means they had. And so in appreciation, the gods transformed the cottage into a temple, making the couple priest and priestess. And when they died, this couple is then immortalized as a great oak tree and a great linden tree. And the inhospitable homes are destroyed. That's the legend that they are going off of. So now the people of Lystra are determined not to make this same mistake again. Look at verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So if you pay attention there, you're going to see that for a little bit here, Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's happening because the people here begin speaking in their own language. They, they stop speaking the trade language, right? And they begin speaking their own language. And, and so it's not until the priest comes with a sacrificial oxen that has garlands on it that Paul and Barnabas go, oh, they think we're gods, Right? And they understand what's happening in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. And so tearing one's robe is a traditional Hebrew way of responding to sacrilege. And so what are they doing? They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. We are just mortals like you. We are not gods. We are not gods. And so... From there, then, Paul tries to preach a sermon. And, and, and it was, he only got partway through it. He, he uses a simple argument for these people based on what he, what he could see of, what they could see of nature. So he uses a basic argumentation. And if he had been able to continue, we know what he would have done. He would have gone on to the gospel, but it doesn't happen. Verse 18 tells us that the crowds persisted with their intent to worship. In verse 18, even with these words, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And so th this is uh, kind of like worst case scenario if you're preaching the gospel to a group of people. Uh, in terms of gospel work, this is maybe just as bad on the scale of preaching the gospel as the attempted stoning that happened in the last place. Like they're not going to hear the gospel. And so their misplaced praise keeps Paul and Barnabas from presenting the full truth. And don't think that there isn't spiritual warfare happening in this moment, in this story. These people wanted to know this new God, but they only wanted to hear what Paul had to say on their terms. Right? Paul and Barnabas never get to explain the incarnation because the people here are determined to keep them within the boundaries of their religious and their spiritual presuppositions. So think about how this happens in our time and day as well. Our culture has all of the trappings of religion and ritual. Even if you want to make the argument that, no, 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 we've moved to a secular age. Yeah, we've gotten new religious stuff. We just don't call it religion anymore. 
And there's a lot of people who might have started out wanting to talk about Jesus. A lot of pastors that you might be seeing online, right? That started out wanting to talk about Jesus who don't have the same perseverance as Paul and Barnabas do. And so they cave in, they take praise for themselves, and they allow themselves to be the object instead of just the deliverer of the good news. And they end up remaking Jesus into something that he is not. This is idolatry. That's what this is. If you find that the Jesus that you love agrees with you all the time, you don't love Jesus, you love you. So the story of Lystra exposes that idolatry. But it also exposes another weakness of ours. And that's this. We like to exalt the messenger instead of the message of the gospel. We love it. John Calvin said we're factories of idols. We want to make men and women, rather than Jesus, our sense of security. This is why when celebrity pastors fall, it hurts. And it exposes that maybe we put a little too much trust into men and women. But this is a huge temptation for Paul and Barnabas, right? And, and again, don't think that Satan, our enemy, doesn't know this. It would have been so easy for the apostles to rationalize, right? To, to rationalize the idolatry at Lystra, convince themselves of some terrible idea about how they can accommodate this wickedness, they can accommodate this idolatry, and then later on, we can just kind of rework the gospel a little bit and make it work. And we'll contextualize it. And so it's to their credit, though, that Paul and Barnabas didn't see what was happening and go, oh, you know what? They want to worship us? Let's let them. And then once we get up on the whatever weird throne they give us, then we'll tell them the real gospel. That never works. And so it's to their credit that they refuse to receive worship by men even for a split second. But there's a price to pay for that in this story. There's a price to pay for kind of scorning the false worship of this crowd. If the people can't fit Paul and Barnabas into their neat little idolatrous preconceptions, what do they do? Well, we see in verse 19, they, they try to do away with them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, this same spirit is alive and well in our, in our day and age, isn't it? If we don't hear exactly what we want to hear from someone who we think we're going to hear the gospel from, what do we do? Well, we might not stone, but we might cancel. We might just stop listening altogether, even though they might be speaking the truth. Now, a stoning, it, it, I know we just talk about that in church sometimes. Like, yeah, this person got stoned. We read the Bible, and we don't really think about it. This is horrific. This is a horrific way to execute somebody. You are literally bashing their skull in with rocks until they die. That's what's happening here. And it's not quick. Right? If you remember the story of Saul who became Paul taking the coats for people while they go to stone someone so that they could get full range of motion to do what they were going to do. That's not what's happening to Saul who's become Paul in this story. And so Acts tells us that the other followers of Jesus who are there are gathered around Paul thinking he's dead, but he ends up not being dead. And so we read in verse 20. He rose up and he entered the city. Now, here is where Paul's, 
wisdom bravery mix leans into the bravery a little bit more, right? I, I would expect it to say, and Paul rose up and ran away quickly. They carried him off as fast as they could. That's not what it says. That is what it says in other places, but it's not what it says here. This is an amazing witness. Think about the effect that this had that was far more profound than if he would have been able to preach 100 sermons. That this, this preached way more, right? He walks back in covered in blood, covered in dirt. Nothing could deter Paul from preaching Jesus. And interestingly, here, here's what's really cool to bring this kind of story, give it some texture. It's the city, this Lystra is the city from which Paul would recruit Lois and Eunice and a young man who is either their son or their grandson named Timothy. That, that is what happens when we are able to see the vision of the kingdom of heaven like Paul and push through the adversity that comes for us. So the courage of the apostles continues, and they keep up this itinerant preaching. They revisit all the cities that had then thrown them out. This is verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul comments on experiences like this in his second letter to that young man, Timothy, later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says this, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet from them all the Lord, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what he says. Jesus himself said the same thing in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If the world hates you in the same way that it hated Jesus, you're following him. And so knowing this and following Jesus anyway is a call for us for not just, but not out of our own just kind of self-mustered courage though, right? Right? This is a call for us for Holy Spirit-empowered bravery. After installing elders in the churches back in uh, our text, the apostles finally head home, verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word at Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commanded commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, how had God opened that door? Through suffering. That's how. And, and so, I mean, think about if Paul and, when Paul and Barnabas are traveling around together, when they get old and they're telling stories from this time, Think of the stories and, the, and the, just the, the swelling in their hearts that they must have been able to tell. And those are the kind of stories that are only gained when you're willing to follow Jesus despite the path that it takes you on. You can't get those kind of stories any other way. So that's the question I ask myself as I think about this text this morning. And I want to ask us, as you're following Jesus, are you willing to understand that Jesus has never promised you, never promised you a nice, flat, paved path. He did not promise you that. 
He just said, follow me. When, when I've been to uh, the Patapsco State Park, right, you can choose between the trails that are paved and the ones that are unpaved. And there's a couple of them that are unpaved that if it's a little bit wet and you're not careful, you can break some ankles on those things, right? They're rocky, they're slippery. And then there's the other paths that are like paved with asphalt. They're really easy. You can just walk on them, go for a nice walk. I think many of us, we read our New Testament and we kind of go, yeah, 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 but that was back then on those slippery, rocky paths that are difficult. But the way God works now is he does the paved, nice, flat ones for us. No. Right? That's the question for us this morning. Jesus said, follow me. And Paul and Barnabas just kept following the call of Jesus on their life to preach the gospel, using discernment and wisdom sometimes to go, you know what, let's cut our losses and let's move on. And other times to be stoned nearly to death and walk right back into the same city. They keep following the call of Jesus on their life to preach the gospel. And what they don't do is what we so often do, which is to make a judgment about following Jesus based on what we thought it would be like. Maybe you thought following Jesus was a way for you to get a nice, easy life that you wanted. And if that's the case, what's revealed in your heart is that a nice, easy life is actually your functional Lord and Savior, and you think Jesus is a pawn to get you there. And it's not. That's not how it works. Jesus is Lord. And so if you want to see examples of what the normal life of following Jesus looks like, you simply read the New Testament. You read the history of the church. And when you do, what you're going to be confronted with is a Jesus that's not easy, a life of following him that is full of difficulty and opposition and suffering, all of which are the expectation for those who would follow the call of Jesus like Paul and Barnabas. And so for us, when we find that life is easy, our response should be, thank you, Lord, for this oddity. Right? The New Testament says, don't be surprised at trials. That's normal. Be surprised when you don't have trials. Be surprised when you have enough money and you have enough food and everything's going fine and you have good relationships. Don't be surprised at trials. Those are the norm. That's what we read in the New Testament. And if we want to follow Jesus like Paul and Barnabas, then we're going to have to expect the same kind of things that Paul and Barnabas experienced. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these stories uh, that maybe don't have like a direct lesson built right into them like some of the epistles do. But thank you that we can read these and, and get a picture and a vision for what life following you looks like. We might not be going as missionaries to a frontier place where there are no Christians, but all of us have relationships, Lord. All of us have little groups that we have influence in. And so, Lord, as you make us wise and brave at the same time to know how we can pursue this vision of your kingdom coming and how we can preach the good news, Jesus, of you and, and of your death and of your resurrection and of your ascension and Holy Spirit of your coming and empowering to us so that, Father, we can glorify you in all things and we can see your kingdom come and your will be done. Jesus, we thank you for bringing us here again today to worship you again and we just ask for your blessing as we go out from this place. And uh, as we live in this world, but not of it, and as we look for your kingdom that's coming. 
pray this in your name. Amen.